we are. Welcome back to Ground Pass, the podcast for you and your casualness, your casual fandom. <laughs> I do like that. What do you think of our little logo, our little Ground Pass logo that is hand drawn by me? Is it hand drawn by you? Yes. <laughs> it's, um, I was sitting on my couch and I was like, jotting out what I wanted the sort of the icon or logo to be. And I was going to clean it up a little bit and obviously make it more professional, I guess you can say, but I've kind of just stuck with it. And I'm wondering how long we can go with sort of like a drawing, my hand drawing. People don't come here for professional podcasts, Anastasia. Ah. You're right. You're right. We got to keep it loose. We got to keep it loose. Keep them guessing. Keep it casual. Keep it casual. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. Tons of stuff has happened in the tennis world since you last joined us, and we will get into all of it today, hopefully in under an hour. Wish us luck. We're going to need it. But we're going to start how we always do with a tennis term you should know about or concept, really. And this week we are talking about rankings. Yes, which we've mentioned a few times um, in the last couple of episodes. So I don't think it's I think it's fairly obvious what a ranking is. It's basically trying to find a way of saying who is the best player in the world at this particular moment in time Um, and the way. Tennis does it is on a points-based system. So you earn points based on results from tournaments. The further you go in the tournament, the more points you get. It's not points per match win um, in the same way. So like it's not an even amount. Like You don't get 10 points for every match you win. It staggers so that at the further you go in the tournament, the more each match is worth. Um, exactly. Until you get to a final. So essentially that's your kind of... That's like the point system in sort of a very broad uh, nutshell. Yeah, yeah. And also the way the points are, the easiest way to know like, oh, what points is a player going to get at this tournament is usually by the type of tournament it is. So it is a little different between the ATP and the WTA. And, you know, we're not going to get into the nitty gritty (laughs) of... This is not a maths podcast. Oh, no, no, no. We are not going to pull out the calculator and figure out how many points you're going to get in this tournament. But in general, if someone wins a Masters 1000, they'll get 1000 points at the end. Or if someone wins a Grand Slam, they'll get 2000 points. So you can almost say the higher a tournament is, which we kind of described last week, the higher the points you get. Yeah, pretty much. And it kind of, there's sometimes you can, you can kind of work it out. Like I, I worked out the pattern for this a few years back um generally on the ATP side is if you win like three to four matches it generally gives the same amount of points for whatever tournament it is um obviously it then really takes off for the higher events uh but even if a player is in a draw has managed to qualify for a draw they'll get at least 10 points on their ranking yeah so um uh, and every point counts because you know you might look at the top of the rankings and say Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz have 8,000 plus points but it's really tight in the the lower part of the rankings where um, like 100 and below, everyone's got less than 1,000 and they're within about 10, 20 points of each other. And suddenly exactly. it's like every match win makes a difference there. 
yeah, yeah, literally every match win. And that's why a lot of lower-ranked players, it's a fight to get into the top 100 so they can start earning more points. The whole goal is to keep moving up the rankings so you can just earn more and more points. In general, the rankings are updated by the ATP and WTA once a week, every Monday. So you can log on every Monday to see what the new rankings are for that for that week. Um, the only time it's extended for two weeks is when there's a two-week event. So some Masters 1000s are two weeks long and Grand Slams are all two weeks long. So that's when you kind of have to wait two weeks and then the next week you figure out who's number one again, <laughs> which is really what we're all looking for. You know, no one's checking to see who's 154. I think. <laughs> well, depends how much you like that player. That's true. We we all, every player has fans. That's true. <laughs> every, every, I kid you, whenever Raducanu first came on the scene at, at Wimbledon in 2021, before she even won the US Open, I was watching her ranking climb up and like watching her get to the 150 mark before she went, oh, look, she's now won the US Open as top 20 in the world. Um, in one in two weeks <laughs> she jumped a hundred exactly. places in two weeks it was mental but I was looking at that lower down but you're right the majority of the time the story is who's going to be number one and it's always really exciting when a tournament creates a mathematical scenario for the players and um, being at the top speaking of mathematical scenarios obviously we're talking about earning points for your ranking but you're probably thinking great so if a player plays every single week then they're going to get more points than everyone else right no because they the tours have built something in um to stop that from happening because well it mitigates the situation of injuries be it either a player is injured and is out for half the year and so they could then win everything and still be playing catch up or yeah. vice versa they're also trying to stop players from playing too many tournaments and getting themselves injured so typically most players will stick within the limit but like I just a bit of a a random stat for you I had a look at like every tournament every world year and world number one played in that calendar year they reached it and um, the very first men's world number one Illy Snazi played over 30 tournaments in one year oh wow yeah and just for (laughs) reference that's really high that's really really high nobody does that now no, nobody does that now. I think Nick and I were talking earlier about um, players who play a lot of tournaments. I was thinking of Taylor Fritz, who I think he's on his count right now is about 27 tournaments. And that is excessive. That is excessive for the year. You know, Carlos Alcaraz, I think, has played 17. Same with Djokovic. So they don't, it is very rare to see players go 20 and above in the modern era, I would say. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah, I think more than 25, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. 20, like, you get someone playing 20 plus tournaments because they're trying to get their, their points up. Um, because, okay, well, what's the limit? Well, broadly speaking, it's around about 18, 19 tournaments a year that count towards the ranking. So your best 18 tournaments are what count um, to the ranking. So if you've played 25, your worst five don't count. Worst sorry 23 your worst five don't count it varies a little bit men's to women's but i'm not going to go super specific here so the as of 2024 18 tournaments will count towards um, your ranking it will go up to 19 if they reach the finals at the end of the season um, which is for the top eight ranked players by season end so that's what we're that's what we're looking at so 
Yeah, which is why sometimes, you know, when it gets a bit complicated mathematically, if you're going, OK, well, um, and this is over a 12-month period. So if you're looking at the rankings come Wimbledon, it's based on did you play eight, how were your best 18 to 19 tournaments in the 12 months since Wimbledon the previous year? So yeah. that's something also to bear in mind. It's rolling 12-month ranking. Yeah, and the way the rankings are built are to help higher ranked players in a way because you know your ranking in the your ranking in the tours affects what tournaments you're able to enter and in that case it helps people who you know if you can get into I think we always talk about for example um, I just watched Andy Murray play which I'm sure we'll talk about later in this episode but Andy Murray for example is constantly trying to improve his ranking so he can get to above 32 which is the cutoff for majors to be seated in a major um, so players always kind of help you know kind of work the system you know I think Andy Murray this summer was playing a lot of challengers so he could build up points um to improve his ranking for Wimbledon. So when you see players do weird things that you might not understand, where you're like, why is Andy Murray playing a challenger in a little town in England somewhere? It's probably to improve his rankings or something like that. Or and a player coming back from injury, you know, what do they do? They play tournaments to kind of improve their ranking. And because the, the higher you're ranked, the more points you can make, the, the more you can stay in a higher ranked position. It's, it's kind of a system that helps those on top um, and the keys to get there. And actually, that's a really, really good point because, you know, we talk about rankings and sort of rating players, but like the main reason rankings are there is to help tournaments as well and to, yeah, to give those players um, a, a, a sort of a clear understanding. So it's because um, often tournaments will do a seeds-based system. Hopefully, if you're a sports fan, you understand how that might work. Um, but with, yeah, you have a number one seed, number two seed, three, four slams, majors have 32. Um, it's usually 16 in Masters 1000 and eight in other tournaments, depending on the draw size. Um, and I think the main benefit is if uh, to avoid really, truly crazy random draws where you could end up with Yannick Sinner playing Carlos Alcaraz in round one of a tournament. Um, it's to prevent that kind of thing because also the tournaments want to save up the biggest clashes for the end of the event in the showpiece in the final and this stacks that helps stack the deck to try and ensure that and also know for the marketing teams like who the star billing is going to go to so that's kind of yeah. key to understand the context of rankings you're right yeah who gets who gets put on court one um but yeah so that's the general idea of rankings based on the 52 week system but there's also a little separate part of the rankings which we will talk about briefly just to inform the tournaments that are happening right now for the WTA and coming up for the ATP so as well as the 52 week ranking there is a quote-unquote race going on, which is athletes building up ranking points in a year period. So from January to December, it resets to zero after every year. So it's something that doesn't just climb up and up and up and up, but it will reset to zero every year. But the whole goal of this is to end up at the ATP or WTA finals event, which is sort of the, it's the grand, you know, end of season 
kind of final shootout who's top of the top for the year. Um, every player is trying to get there. There are only eight players, and it's the top eight players that are ranked in the race that get to attend. So um, you'll hear a lot about, you know, especially in the last weeks leading up to the finals, you'll hear about people fighting for points for the race and who's qualified, who hasn't qualified for the race yet. I think this year the WTA race was a little bit more... um, I would say a little bit more kind of decided really early while the men's race, they're entering right now their last masters of the season. And I think three spots are still undecided. So they are still sort of fighting in the race. I think um, seven players are currently fighting for these three spots. So it can get pretty exciting in the end. If you're, if you're, you know, waiting to see who's going to make it to Turin um, at the end of the season, um, which is always fun. Sometimes you, just, you you like that sort of thing where it's not just clear cut by September. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the race is much more interesting um, when it comes to that. And for those of you who knew are going, okay, there's another thing I've got to follow. Don't panic. You don't need to follow the race all year round. It only really becomes relevant after the US Open when it really comes into that crunch point. Because the race, as Anastasia said, is the year to date ranking, um, not the overall like previous 52 week rank over the 52 week ranking so tennis players do classify their seasons by calendar year um so it's 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 a good way of indicating who's having a good season but um really only really matters from like mid-september to mid-october to to like late october a lot of the time and even then by the end by the time the finals themselves roll around the race and the ranking are going to be exactly the same because the 52 weeks would have rolled around to match. So it's not massively complicated. So don't don't worry about following both. I'd say pretty much all year round, follow your ranking. Um, the top eight ranked, top eight in the rankings will always end up playing injury aside um, in the finals. Um, it's just the race. The race becomes relevant when we are analy- when we're starting to predict who might make the season finale if we like. And everyone loves a good season finale, right? Oh, everyone loves a good season finale. And there are two other events that actually depend on the race. So, you know, you do have the top eight players who are fighting to get to the the ATP or WTA finals. But there are two other events where the race rankings come into play. One of them being on the ATP side is the next gen, which is kind of, it's, I want to say it's sort of a discovery tournament. Who are the young guns who are coming up who might be leading the tour in the future? So it's for players who are 21 years old and younger who are the top eight in that age category. Um, So it, it can be a really funny race when you, look at it because you know let's take for example this year Ben Shelton is number one in that race and I think he has over 3,000 points the next person under him I think has less than a thousand points so there is some it does tend to sort of fluctuate a lot because a new player coming up is usually not going to be in the top 100 or anything like that but this is an opportunity for them this is like a little tournament for them where you can kind of showcase who's coming up in the field um I like I like the next gen um, tournament. It's always nice. Here are some winners. Um, 
Carlos Alcaraz has won it before. Alex de Menor played it. I think he won it that. No, he didn't win it that no, year. I think that was he's the been year. final twice. Never won it. Yeah, Sinner yeah. won. So it, it's definitely where you can discover the next stars of of the game. And do you want to tell us about the WTA Elite Trophy? Yeah, the WTA Elite Trophy is um, there for the players who are ranked kind of nine to twenty. Um, so uh, the beauty of the WTA field is actually the quality difference to, between the top 20 players in the world is so small that, like, um, you know, it's not that big a surprise if the world number 20 beats the world number one. Um, and this tournament kind of um, celebrates that by saying, hey, you didn't quite make the finals, but you still had a great season. So let's see if we can give you a boost and get you closer to the top 10, which is what everyone, I think, is kind of a, the elite kind of bracket if you were like everyone wants to have a single digit number next to their name or have a one next to their name with a zero and uh um it's a good opportunity um for these players to like say hey i had a deep had a good had a good season let's let's finish on a high and also actually if you look historically l- give themselves a great launch pad for the, the next season or even two seasons if you yeah. look at previous wins because this tournament's been going since 2015 Biggest example I could think of are the most recent winners, apart from this year, which we'll talk about later. You know, 2018 was won by Ashley Barty, who the very next season became world number one, won her first Grand Slam, became world number one, held on to that ranking for three years before she decided to retire whilst on top of the game. And then, uh, which is just a power move of all power moves, by the way, and I still fully respect her for it. And uh, Totally. And- Arita Sabalenka in 2019. Um, 2020 ended up, could have been a breakout season for her had it not been disrupted by the pandemic. But by the time 2021 came around, she was definitely a top player. She finished the year as world number two. Look at where she is now. She's the world number one. Um, so this tournament is great to see who might then build up some confidence and say, hey, I can hang with the best in the world. I can beat the best in the world and I can compete at the very, very top. And uh, I think that's where it, it gets interesting. Um, for it yeah. so um, obviously we've just had that tournament so we'll probably talk about the results in a bit yeah no totally and that actually should bring us to the tennis which I know is why everyone is here everyone wants to know about the tennis what has been happening a lot has been happening it was only two so much ago. tennis like so, there was much, so tennis. much tennis there's been so much <laughs> tennis that not even Anastasia and I could watch all of it it's almost impossible to you would have to, it'd have to be your job. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Food for thought. It would have to be your job if you watched every single match that happened over the last two weeks. Even if it's but your job, I don't tennis. think it was possible. I know. It would be brutal. And that's the thing, because tennis happens all over the world. And right now, Nick and I are in parts of the world where the Asian swing and matches that were happening there were at a very difficult time. Very difficult time to watch. <laughs> but we tried. It's been a difficult time for us. Yes, yes. It's so hard. Pity us tennis fans. <laughs> Western tennis fans with us, which allow us to watch most matches. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so... A lot has happened. We It was literally two weeks ago. Here we are back with you again. And Ben Shelton is a champion. He has won an event this year, which, you know, such a breakout year for him in terms of this is his first professional year on tour. 
Um, and here he is, the champion at the Tokyo um, ATP 500. Um, I don't know anyone else who has had a better sort of debut year, really. I think you'd have to really scour the history books to come up with something. Um, yeah. And even then, a lot of it's like, it depends on context and things like that. And I, I, I'm a big tennis historian, but I can't think of anyone who's had that who's done that well straight out the gate um, in that way, like winning titles. I mean, maybe the closest equivalent would be Coco Goff on the women's side. Yeah. um, Who, but like her first title was a 250, um, whereas Shelton has got to a Grand Slam semi-final and has won an ATP 500, which, um, yes, it may be the third tier, but it's still damn hard to win. Like... Yes, um, it is. The fields there are, office, are always very competitive, even if the top players don't, like the, the, the top four in the world don't play. And I think Shelton had to get through a few top 10 players. There were, there were some in the draw. Um, there were plenty of people who were competing in the in the race to try and get to the finals who had a, had a real shout and needed this tournament as a good springboard. So, yeah, for Shelton to win this title, he's announcing himself as... Um, a real big name on tour um, very early on. Um, so, yeah, and let's face it, I think it's very, very clear that he is going to be one of tennis's biggest stars going forward. Certainly, I've there's not many players I've seen as much fuss about. There are some I can think of off the top of my head, which I don't necessarily need to name. Um, probably there's some a few in there that he doesn't want to be associated with. Um, but um, he he's definitely someone who um, is going to be the f- the face of the ticket booths going forward, especially in the US. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, he already does it now. I can't imagine if he continues at this pace um, what's coming. But it's really exciting. It's really exciting. I think in in a time where I think there were a lot of people afraid of what will happen when the big names you know, leave tennis, like when Serena's gone and, you know, Rafa and Roger and all those people, it's really nice to see a really strong group of young players, you know, really catching the eye of, of new fans and old fans alike, which is great. Yeah, so that that was Tokyo. Other, um, I'm just going to run through some other events that happened because if we try to talk about all of them, we would be here till tomorrow. But Stockholm was won by Monfils. That was really awesome to see. It's always nice to see a player who has been around for a long time. I think he's 36 now or 37. Still kicking, still winning tournaments. So that was great. Antwerp was won by Bublik. Another one that happened just this past weekend. Two tournaments that happened this past weekend that um, one of them involves my player of the fortnight so i'll expand on it when we get to that section but another one was the swiss indoors and faa won this tournament someone who has been in pretty bad form this year and he came into swiss indoors he had a title to defend part of the ranking points um discussion that we had earlier if you do not defend a title your ranking points that you earned for that event the previous year kind of fall off. So in order to get them back, you have to re-earn them. And I think a lot of people didn't think FAA would do that, but he did. He he managed to defend that title remarkably. I, I think for maybe casual fans out there, let's uh, 
let's clarify some names here in case you want to do some uh, some googling um so the main thing being faa if you don't know already is the abbreviation of uh felix auger aliassime who is canadian if you um, don't know faa are you even a casual fan <laughs> there is a distinct possibility that given how Felix's year has gone. You may not have heard of him. If you became a tennis fan this year, Felix is not registered on the radar much this year. Other than that is such oh, a great point. Again. He's lost yeah. really early in tournaments. So for him to just come in and defend his title in Basel, that was a statement win. That was a, I'm still here. I'm still a contender. Don't count me out. Um, tight win. And you could see it um, in his celebrations. And he beat Hubert Hercatch in the final. I wasn't expecting that. Hercatch is someone who is very, very close to potentially being an upset contender for the ATP finals. Obviously, he just won Shanghai a few weeks back. Um, so for, for Felix Auger-Aliassime to come in, um, yeah, I know some people call him FAA, I call him Felix because I, <laughs> I find it easier to say. But he's... Uh, yeah, I think that was a big win, and he's he's he was looking so like a contender at the end of 2022. So I'm interested to see whether he, that's going to be a real launch for 24 because I'm here for that if it is. Oh, I am here for that with bells on. That would be really really great, really great to see. Um, what happened in the past two weeks of the WTA? Uh, well, there were a few. This is what we were talking about, like mental levels of tennis. So we had our week with three tournaments on three different continents of which we had um so there was one in Seoul in um Korea which was won by Jessica Pagula um who is the world number 5 um uh one of the um top american uh women's tennis players one of the top american top uh, tennis players stop uh, full stop right there's no top yeah. 5 american tennis players yeah. in the uh, in the men's side we've got two on the women's um <laughs> And uh, just just a reminder for those obsessed with the men's game, and uh, we also have um, we also had um, Monastir in Tunisia in Africa, which was won by Elise Merton, sort of tour veteran, very consistent winner. Um, and um, uh, there was um, oh gosh, it was uh, the uh, one in China. No, oh, there was Transylvania. Transylvania. Oh, so many tournaments, which was won <laughs> by um, Tamara Korpach from Germany. Neither of us watched that tournament. Let's move on. But it is a fun tournament to watch the marketing for because they really lean into the Halloween theme because obviously it's in they Transylvania. Really so yeah. you've got Romanian players walking out in like black Dracula cloaks and that kind of thing. It's it's fun to a certain... It, 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 it's a little bit of fun and everyone leans into it. And great if you're yeah. a Romanian tennis fan. WTA Elite Trophy happened last week. That's what we were just talking about with the 9 to 20 Ranking, it ends up being expanded a little bit because some players didn't play who were supposed to. So Zachary's rank number nine didn't play. We'll talk about why in a minute, um, probably later on in the show. Um, other players like Petra Kvitova didn't want to didn't want to play it. They wanted to like she wanted to end her season to recover. I think Belinda Bencic was in a similar situation. So it ends up being more like twenty five, and then a wild card extra with Shu Lin who's 30-something in the world getting added in because the tournament was, it was being held in um, in Shuhai in China. Um, so a couple of Chinese players in there. But it um, ended up being the story of two players that tournament. Um, Zhang Chinwen, home favourite, coming off a great run in Asia, specifically China. And obviously home favourite had a massive crowd support, but she was beaten by the absolutely imperious Beatrice Haddad Meyer, 
in the final. We'll probably talk a little bit more about her a little bit later. But yeah, she was she was pretty good. So that that's that's your kind of whistle stop tour of everything that happened in the WTA in two weeks. There was a lot of names in there, lots of really interesting names, particularly people like Zhang Chin Wen, who I know you're a big fan of. Um, huge fan, huge fan, also, huge. Also, She's gonna be big, guys. Pay attention. She's gonna be big. And actually, if she'd <laughs> won that title, if she'd won that title, she would have been ranked to the top ten. She fell. She would have so close. She was so. She fell. Yeah. She was so close. Um, essentially. Yeah. No. Um, it was a bumper past two weeks for sure. Um, and it's it's still going because you know tennis doesn't stop. So this week. We have a whole bunch of tournaments happening as well. Mostly, um, you know, this is sort of the end of year roundup. You know, it's just before we all go on and we take a really short break before tennis starts back up again. Um, For the ATP side, the Paris Masters 1000 is happening. It's happening in Paris. It's indoors and it's the last Masters of the season just before the ATP finals. So this is the last chance players really get to bank up some ranking points to hopefully make it into the finals. And this year, like we said earlier, there are three spots left to be filled and about seven players who are all in contention, who only have like a a few hundred points that separate them. So it should be a really, really exciting tournament. It also, it it marks the return of Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. Novak hasn't played since the U.S. Open. Carlos Alcaraz hasn't played since Shanghai. So this is sort of their return to tour just before the ATP finals, which they have already qualified for. On the WTA side, lots going on as well. Well, I say lots going on. It's the WTA finals. It's this week. Their season finale is here and it's happening now. It started as of recording yesterday, um, Sunday the 29th of October, um, and the Elite Eight are in action um, I'm going to run through the names with a little bit of a tagline. So who's playing? Arena Sabalenka, world number one, Australian Open champion. Igor Sviontek, French Open champion, was the dominant force on tour, has been upset by Sabalenka. Um, you've got Coco Goff, the US Open champion. Elena Rabakina, um, champion in Indian Wells and part of an incredible final in Australia with Sabalenka. Um, also won Rome. Um, the 1000 event, Jessica Pagula, the super consistent player on tour. She won in Canada um, this year. Marketa von Drusheva, the Wimbledon champion. I think I've gone out of order a little bit. The person she beat in the final on Shabur and um, Maria Sakari, who won in Guadalajara. Sakari, the reason why she wasn't playing in the Elite Trophy, despite being number nine, is because she's coming as the first alternate because the number... Uh, I think the original, um, I can't remember where she would have been ranked, but Karin Mukova, the French Open finalist, um, had to pull out due to injury, sadly, which I think a lot of people, to be honest, are very gussed about because um, it, she's a very popular player, um, not just in how she plays, but who she is. So, yeah, that's what's going on. And it's taking place in Cancun. So if you want to get to know the top players on the women's tour get to know some personalities, you are going to be seeing these players over and over again. Because unlike every other tournament, which is a knockout, this is a group stage-based system. It's a round robin. So every player has to play at least three times. They're in two groups of four. They'll all play three matches each. The best two 
from each group will then take each other on the semi-finals. The winner of those semi-finals play each other in the finals. So if you want to get a feel for how, who are players and how they play and who you want to support who's going to be at the top of the game, this is the perfect one to jump in on, especially if you're in the US or kind of the North American zone. So Canada, Mexico, obviously South America. Go, go give it a watch um, because you will be able to make judgments for yourself on players like Sabalenka and Sviantek and Goff. Um, and not only that, um, there's also less tennis at that tournament to worry about because, again, other tournaments pack their day full of matches. This, you get two singles matches a day and two doubles matches a day. Um, so it's really not that much and you kind of know when they're going to be um, as well. So it's a lot easier to schedule things around. So it'll be the same yeah. in the ATP finals come round, and Anastasia will give her own monologue about who's at the <laughs> and how that's going to work. I don't know how I'm going to top that, Nick, because, you know, if if you've been in the social media sphere, I'm sure if you're listening, you've heard about the a little bit of rumblings of the WTA finals and, you know, the sort of behind the scenes of that event. And I was just listening to Nick's sort of run through of each player. And I was just thinking, oh, I wish each player was introduced like this at the actual event. It would be so great. <laughs> Every time they qualified, if you could just do that little like clip thing. So I have a lot to live up to because I don't know if I can do that for every player who qualifies for the ATP final, but I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. And and Nick, you're totally right about the scheduling. You know, if you want to watch the WTA finals, especially if you're on in the Northern Hemisphere, they start in the in sort of the late afternoon and you can just watch, you know, those four matches after work or whatever. It, it you know, it obviously changes if you're somewhere else in the world, but it is a great event to sort of schedule yourself around and kind of stick with it and see who comes out on top. I know with the time zone I'm in, I'm not sleeping much. <laughs> <laughs> this is tennis. Tennis, what is sleep? All we care about is tennis. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so dreading the Australian Open next year because I'm, I'm just trying to work my schedule around to see how I'm actually going to watch any matches live at the Australian Open. And for people who always wonder, do you guys really watch matches live? I have to tell you, about 50% of the matches I watch are replays because it really truly is close to impossible to actually watch every single match you want because life because life happens you know <laughs> yes exactly like um you either one of those people who schedules life around tennis or tennis around life um, and sometimes that will vary depending on the time of year or how important something is to you um if there's any australian tennis fans out there who want to tell us more about Australia, we'd love to hear from you because you don't want your Australian Open coverage to just be, yeah, I was asleep, I missed it. No, you don't. So so give us tips. Give us any tips you have on how to keep up with the Australian Open outside of Australia. That would be really useful. And you have to for, do it for every other event in the year. This is true. So you, you definitely have um, the 411, as they would say. But um, this kind of brings me, I should bring up our social media feeds because uh, we post a lot there kind of draws for tournaments, who's playing, who's winning, who's losing the little snippets and reviews of the matches. So if you're looking for a place to sort of keep up with the tennis, if you can't watch all of it, follow us on Instagram and threads. 
we have the exact same um, handle in both of them. And it's basically ground underscore pass. I will put it in the show notes for this episode so that you can just take a look and follow us along there because it's mostly how we keep up with tennis is sort of checking social media and seeing what's happening around. So we want to give that to you guys too. And you can like, you know, check us out there and follow the matches if you can't, if you can't watch all of them. So we're going to, I mean, we've done pretty well this episode. I'm actually really proud of us. We've been (laughs) efficient. We've been so efficient this episode. Look at us. So we actually get, (laughs) we actually get to talk about um, our players of the fortnight, um, which we kind of skipped the last episode, but it's fine. We're we're casual here. You know, they're interchangeable. (laughs) interchangeable but my player of the Fortnite, i have to say i mean i think everyone can guess so what you should do right now is pause pause the podcast and guess who my player of the Fortnite is leave us a comment and a review um wherever you're listening to this podcast and just write who you think i i had and okay now you can unpause it is yannick sinner a little rabbit, carrot-eating, redhead Yannick Sinner. He has had quite the fortnight, quite the Asian swing, um, and he's really coming into his own. <laughs> For those who are just listening, you know, Nick is doing his rabbit ears. Um, if anyone doesn't know, I will also post a video of why Yannick Sinner is so associated with carrots and why his fans are called the Corota Boys. Um, I mean, it's but, fairly obvious yeah. of him. He has red hair. <laughs> this is true. He does have red hair. But it's really from the next gen finals when he was eating carrots at the changeovers. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's how it that's how it actually started. Oh well, so Nick is gonna also watch the video <laughs> that I'm gonna <laughs> post. Um but yeah, no, Yannick Sinner. He's definitely been a slow burn. I think when he came on the scene and he had all these sort of electric matches with Carlos Alcaraz, the hype was so strong. You know, everyone was like, he's the next thing. It's going to be Carlos and Yannick, and they're just going to fight till the end in every tournament from now till eternity. That didn't really happen. You know, Carlos kind of skyrocketed a little bit and left Yannick behind. Every time they would meet, they did have phenomenal matches, but Yannick hasn't really brought his form, his true form into Grand Slams, which I think is where a lot of people judge players is at the Grand Slam. So you really haven't seen him go super, super deep in a Grand Slam, like get to a final. But he has been a slow burn, slowly improving his game, slowly improving his form. And he has currently turned around a matchup, which now is going to be must-watch TV for me, and I hope for you too. Anytime he plays Daniil Medvedev, turn on the television. Because the final he had with Daniil Medvedev in Vienna was one of the matches of the year. It was such a topsy-turvy, back-and-forth grind and fight, and neither of them was going to lose, and Yannick succeeded in the end. He played phenomenally, and he really showed the improvements I think he's made this year um, as a player, and I'm just so excited for 
next season. You know, he is going to be, he qualified for the ATP finals. So that's going to be a new realm to see him in. I'm excited for that. But I can't wait to see him um, next year and see if he can finally break that Grand Slam final cherry and like get to one. You know, I think I think 2024 might be his year. So excited to see um, how that goes. He is my player of the fortnight. For someone who's a Carlos Alcaraz fan, you are very big on Yannick Sinner. What's going to happen when they eventually do become the two players who are tearing up at the top of the game? Because you were saying that like it hasn't happened. I would caveat with it hasn't happened yet because 2024, maybe even 2025 might be when that starts happening. Obviously, I think Novak and Daniil are going to have something to say about that. Um, but because uh, I think Novak Djokovic is going to be forced for at least another year. Um, yeah, so totally. Can't rule him out. But the uh, yeah, with with Yannick being in play, uh, yeah, that's going to be uh, interesting for you. You might not be a Yannick fan every week for much longer. <laughs> 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 might have to drop him just like I dropped Roger. You know. <laughs> It's the same thing that happened when it was Nadal and Roger. You know, your heart was just, you know, who your heart just kept going back and forth. And who is it this week? And who is it next week? But that's the thing about tennis. You know, someone maybe will exit the draw early and then you just switch your allegiance and your love to the next person. I mean, sure, you could do that. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, no, I, I am. Nick would never that. do that to Iga. Nick would never do that to Iga. Unless Layla's in the draw. Um, oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm being a hypocrite, Anastasia. Well, who's your player of the fortnight? Uh, Beatrice I'd admire. Um, because she kind of dismissed the very, very close opposition. She didn't drop a set. Um, I said dismiss. That's a strong word. Because that final with John Chin Wen was so good. It was two tie breaks. Had admire had the edge, but Zhang just would not give up. And Hadamai had to really do what she does best and grind it out. And that's what she's known for. Um, and it, it's been very effective. And now Hadamai is number 11 in the world. Only a few points off the top 10. Uh, could make her top 10 debut um, in early 24. I, I'd be here for that. Um, and she's she's had a difficult year. I mean, she kind of broke through a little bit in the grass court season last year. Got to the Canada final um, a few weeks after that. Uh, this year's got to the French Open semi-finals, but um, really that was kind of her highlight. And now, uh, yeah, winning this trophy, um, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a big result for her. And uh, and we should note to... too, we should note she also won doubles. Yes, she won both events. That is an insane physical feat, given how difficult that was going to be. Although, be it, I think there were only four doubles teams in the event, so it wasn't as strenuous as trying to do the same thing at the WTA finals, which. By the way, Jessica Pagula and Coco Goff are trying to do, um, by the way. Um, so that would be entertaining, wouldn't it, if we ended up with Pagula versus Goff in the final of the singles and then having to play the final of the doubles <laughs> to try and win it. I think the doubles final would be first. but Yeah, I think they've done that this year too, where they were playing doubles at an, at an event and then they also had to play against each other. And I don't remember what Montreal? tournament it was. Oh, it was. It was Canada. Yes, 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 totally. It's always, that's always an interesting dynamic for me when doubles players, who are pretty close because, you know, something you might not know is some doubles players, and I, when I learned this, I was like, that's so interesting. But some doubles players actually become teams 
at the sign-up desk of the event. You know, they maybe haven't known each other before anything. So it's always interesting to me when doubles players play each other, but then are as close as Coco and, you know, um, Jessica are. So, yeah, that's always a thing for me. I, I, well, I, I didn't, um, I remember I did a, an interview um, a few months back with uh, Storm Hunter and Alicia Parks at the Birmingham WTA 250 event, Birmingham in the UK, not mm-hmm. Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and uh, the and, and they did the same thing. They literally decided to become a team 10 minutes before sign up. Um, and uh, <laughs> one of them actually had to ditch who they were originally playing with in order to do it. Um, and then, yeah, they ended up being a really, really effective team. They got to the final, just lost, I think, to... I can't remember, Krajikova, it was... Krajikova was one of them, but I can't remember who the, her partner was. But, yeah, that was... Uh, that was Yeah, it does happen. It's, it, but, like, sometimes it's like, oh, and this just this just clicks. It works. Um, yeah, I don't know. How, how do, do you think that doubles players kind of became team members? Was it purely strategic, or is it just who you're mates with? It's funny because... I was listening to Jessica Pagula talk about her partnership with her mixed doubles partner, who happens to be the number one men's doubles player at the moment. I do not know why he's Krychek, I think is his last name. Austin Krychek, and, yeah. Is it, uh, exactly, Austin. And they basically, because I think they were being interviewed and the discussion was like, oh, are you friends? And they're like, well... Not really. We kind of just talk to each other when we're playing doubles, but they play doubles a lot. They play mixed doubles together a lot. So it's very interesting with how doubles players are in the sense that I actually don't think a lot of them are friends or as close as, you know, a Coco and a Jessica Bagula, for example. And it's just partnerships that work based on skill level. You know, who who do you pair up well with? and can then kind of go forward. I mean, I do love when there is a relationship between the players. Like my favorite current doubles team right now is Taylor Townsend and Layla Fernandez. Um, I just love, I love their, their dynamic and their, it's, it's, if you haven't watched their finals at the French Open, please just do that. Do that. (laughs) They're so good. They're so good at encouraging each other and they're both quite dynamic personalities anyway um yeah but you know that's that that's great to watch and I think the the doubles teams everyone loves are the ones who actually are genuine friends and get on with each other like um the top one of the top doubles teams in the women's tour Barbara Kuchikova and Katarina Siniakova um have been friends since they were kids and they've been playing together since they were kids and they don't see any reason to to stop that one of the greatest doubles teams of all time the Bryan brothers on the ATP side like they're brothers there's um uh, Twins. You know, they're going to be pretty close. Twin brothers, yeah. They have been, they're, they're close as two doubles partners can pretty much get. Possibly um, be, yeah. <laughs> possibly, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, but then, you know, you look at the other stuff that you're talking about and the first thing I thought of was, well, there's no rule you have to be friends with whoever with who you work with. This is true. That's, that's a really good point. And this has been Nick and Anastasia's divergent tennis conversation. Welcome. You're yes. welcome. Welcome to Tennis Tangents. This... By the way, for those who are panicking, this was not a passive-aggressive thing. I am actually friends with Anastasia. <laughs> Worry no longer. But this actually gives me a great um, topic point. We really should talk about doubles in a future episode um, and break them down a little bit because, you know, 
I do have to say some people don't pay attention to doubles. You know, the singles players are the ones everyone like goes for and goes to watch, but they're really great double teams out there and their matches can be so, so exciting. So, so exciting. So we need to mark that down, Nick, as, as a topic we talk about in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing during recording. We should definitely talk about doubles at some point. Um, and I have some thoughts as to why maybe doubles is harder to father singles, but definitely always worth a watch. Yeah. Well, this has been the, a lovely episode, Nick. I think we, we nailed it. We were on point under an hour. What else can you ask for? I will ask to please rate us, subscribe, do whatever it is you need to do, whatever the kids do these days, and um, just keep listening because we, we're, we're enjoying doing this. 100%. I, you know, it's blocked out every two weeks in my calendar. Recording with Anastasia, and I know it's going to be an absolute blast every single week. So thank you as always, and I'm looking forward to updating everyone as to what happened in the WTA finals as I go on a massive monologue about how awesome every single player is. See you all in two weeks. See you in two weeks.